The St. Michael singers and Jesus calls us o'er the tumult of our lives' wild, restless sea. singers and Jesus calls us o'er the tumult. Here's the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra Chorus. It's Charles Wesley's Love Divine or Love's Excelling. It's sung not to a Welsh tune as it usually is, but to a tune by Stainer.
And that tune comes from Stainer's Crucifixion, does it not? But there we heard it set to Love Divine or Love's Excelling, and it was sung by the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra Chorus. I always find that a bit of a mouthful. But let's get over to David. Rachel Clark is a doctor helping to care for hospital patients affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. Rachel talked to Michael Barclay about the difficulties facing NHS staff and also about her previous work caring for terminally ill patients in a hospice. Rachel Clark is a doctor who specialises in palliative care and she spent her career working in hospices with people at the end of their lives. She's now on the COVID front line. In March 2020, she moved to Horton General Hospital outside Banbury to care for the most gravely unwell patients on the COVID wards. She's the author of three books, the first about being a junior doctor, the second, which you may have heard on Radio 4, Dear Life, about working with the dying, and most recently, Breathtaking, which describes in moving detail what it's been like in hospitals during the pandemic. Increasingly, she finds herself speaking out about the challenges facing NHS staff. We're recording this, Rachel, in mid-January at a time of unspeakable stress for everyone. What's your week been like? Well, it has been really tough this week. Uh, One of the most poignant things at the moment is we're now seeing people who have caught COVID because of the Christmas mixing. You try and do the best job you can, everybody is, but the reality is we're running out of beds in the NHS at the moment and that strain is really starting to, to take a toll now on staff sometimes people break down. Staff are gritting their teeth and keeping on going because we must, because there are patients in need, but it's a hard old week. Yes, I wonder how you keep going, how you do give yourself some kind of escape and how much music plays a part in that. Well, when the first wave began back in spring, we had this strange paradox of this gorgeous, gorgeous, unusually, unseasonably hot springtime, beautiful blue days over and over again. And that juxtaposition of of the beauty of an English springtime against the horrors of what was happening inside our hospitals was very stark. And I used to walk out of my front door with the rest of the family still asleep very early and set off in the car to drive along the motorway to the hospital. And the first thing I heard as I walked outside was this extraordinary just clamouring of birdsong in the shrubs around our drive. And I used to listen to that song and it was a kind of serenade of hope as I went into the car. And I found... I couldn't listen to words. I'm normally a sort of Radio 4 listen to the Today programme kind of car driver and I couldn't bear the words. I couldn't listen to the statistics and the endless analysis and I had to turn the words off and move into the realm of music instead. Um, I think that music can 
lift you, elevate you in exactly the same way as the bird song I love so much can. And one piece of music in particular, a very famous piece of music is Vaughan Williams' The Lark Ascending. And I found almost on a daily basis I would play this music as I drove ever closer to the front doors of the hospital behind which I knew I would be seeing desperate suffering and and, and desperate challenges and somehow Vaughan Williams would lift me and carry me and give me some resilience with which to start the day. Music from The Lark Ascending by Rafe Fawn Williams with Nigel Kennedy and the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra conducted by Simon Rattle. You began your career as a journalist, Rachel Clark, making television documentaries and, and you didn't decide to train as a doctor till your late 20s. Perhaps no surprise given that your father was a doctor. But what was it that drew you to working with people at the end of their lives? Well, it's a... It's a good question, and I'm often asked that question. People tend to do a double take when they find out you've chosen to specialise in palliative medicine. Perhaps perversely, contrary to what people would expect, it's really not depressing. It's the exact opposite of depressing. People who are dying are exactly like you and me. Dying is a lived experience. We, all of us, are living until our very last breath. And in some ways, the only difference between a dying person and someone who is mortal but doesn't quite yet know the date that they will die is that those people who've had the terminal diagnosis know exactly how precious time is and how important it is to cherish every moment. Um, Dennis Potter, the playwright, famously gave an interview many years ago 
with Melvin Bragg, where he talked about this having been diagnosed with terminal pancreatic cancer. And he talked about the the nowness of life for him. He looked out of his window at a plum tree at the blossom and he said, it's not just blossom, it's the whitest, frothiest, blossomiest blossom you could ever imagine. And he talked about the only thing he knew for certain being the present tense. And I work with patients who inhabit that extraordinary nowness of the present tense. They know that their time is slipping through their grasp and they still find within themselves the strength and resilience and extraordinary compassion in a way to live what remains of their life looking outwards to the world they love and the people they love and that is an everyday inspiration it's a privilege to work with these patients Mm -hmm. music now from Elgar's Enigma variations and it's Nimrod and I think this links everything up because uh, not only uh, is it a piece you like but it's one of your father's favorite pieces and I think you took him to hear it at the proms didn't you when he was very ill yes I did Uh, so very soon after I uh started specialising in palliative medicine. My father, uh, who, as you mentioned, was a doctor, he was a general practitioner, was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And I watched cancer just slowly, slowly, piece by piece, take little bits of him away until there was so little left. Myself and my brother and sister and mum, we all were determined to try and give dad what Dennis Potter talked about. We wanted to find those moments of of nowness where he could forget his cancer, he could transcend it and live in the present tense. And dad loved music, absolutely loved music. When he was a medical student in London, he used to go off to the proms every year and um, get the cheapest tickets standing right in the top of the Albert Hall and listen to all his favourite pieces. And he hadn't done it for decades. So I thought this is a way to try and give Dad a moment that's full of wonder. I had no idea if he was going to be alive in the summer of the proms, but I booked the tickets anyway. And I booked a prom that was Elgar's first symphony because dad loved Elgar. And to our enormous delight, dad was just well enough to go there. And he was almost too thin and too frail to walk into the Albert Hall. But my mum and I supported him. He had a couple of sips of champagne, which he couldn't really enjoy, but he wanted us to enjoy champagne. And we sort of gingerly sat him down in his chair. And I was terribly worried that he would be uncomfortable because he was so thin. And I watched the music lift him away from his cancer. There's a a wonderful quote from Bob Marley in in one of his songs where he says, music, when it hits you, you feel no pain. And I saw that happen with Dad. And at the end of the symphony, Daniel Barenboim, who was conducting the prom, turned to the audience and started talking about, of all things, Brexit. It was was one of the many points when the, the Brexit debate was very febrile in the UK. And he said, I want to show you how music can 
transcend difference and debate and hostility and uh, violence. There had been some terrorist attacks that summer in London. And he said, I'm going to show you how to do this by playing music. And he turned and the orchestra started to play Nimrod, which is my father's, was my father's favourite piece of music, his absolute favourite piece of music. And it felt like somehow the gods had gifted my dying father a moment and an experience that we never could have predicted that was just tailor-made for him. And I saw tears streaming down his face. I had tears streaming down my face. And we held hands and his I could feel every bone of his hand and I looked at his face as the music swelled and it was radiant, pure radiance and, and that's the power of music.
Nimrod from Elgar's Enigma Variations with Daniel Barenboim conducting the London Philharmonic Orchestra. As part of the Enigma Variations, Nimrod was the codename, so to speak, of one of Elgar's friends. I looked Nimrod up in the Bible. In the Bible, Nimrod was the grand or a grandson of Noah and described as a mighty hunter. So that'll be where the clue is, mighty hunter. Uh, Nimrod's also credited with founding Nineveh. Let's get back to music, and this time it's Steph McLeod with the Celtic Worship Band. The song is In Christ Alone. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground. Firm through the fiercest drought and storm What heights of love, what depths of peace And fears are stilled when striving cease My comforter, my all in all Here in the love of Christ I stand Flesh, fullness of God in helpless pain, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin. of Christ I live There in the ground His body lay Light of the world by darkness slain Then bursting forth in glorious day Up from the grave He
This week, Ernie Ray is examining the question of how religion should be taught in schools. He discusses with representatives from A, Canterbury University, B, the Humanist Society, and C, the Scripture Union, whether there's a conflict between science and religion which needs to be resolved. Since Darwin published On the Origin of Species, there's been a perceived battle between science and religion. It wasn't always so. For hundreds of years, science was designed to help people reach a better understanding of God rather than a better understanding of the world. The Enlightenment changed all that. Today, schoolchildren are taught science and religion as separate subjects. Are the two incompatible? Would it not be better if science and religion were taught together? The Book of Wonders, designed for primary school children and beautifully produced and illustrated, has been published in an attempt to bring the two disciplines together. Is this a good thing? Will it help children to discuss some of the big questions of life? I'm joined today by Barry Billingsley, Professor in Science Education at Canterbury Christchurch University and Director of LASAR, which stands for Learning About Science and Religion. Dr Ruth Wareham is Education Campaigns Manager at Humanist UK and a former primary school teacher. And Dr Miles McBain is National Director at Scripture Union England and Wales. Miles, you're a Christian and a scientist. Are the two compatible? Well, absolutely, yes, I would say. In a way, I'm a living example of that compatibility, that uh, I was once a published, professionally trained scientist, and I'm a follower of Jesus Christ as well, and I don't have a split personality. Uh, However, I also think that if we properly understand the assumptions and limitations of of each topic, as it were, science and religion, then science and theology are complementary and indeed powerful ways for humans to explore the universe and empower each other together. Ruth? Well, the answer to the question really depends on the religion. Some religious perspectives are clearly at odds with science, young earth creationism, for example. However, there are also many reasonable religious people who not only accommodate both religion and science as part of their own worldview, but see them as mutually supportive Our concern would be if that apparent compatibility in some cases was then used as a vehicle for unevidenced religious theories being taught as evidence-based in science lessons. Barry? Well, I'm going to um, highlight the word compatible already in the question because the insights I hope to bring into the conversation today are about how children interpret the world and how they make sense of it. And I'm going to um, share a quick case study of a 10-year-old who at the beginning of the interview said to me, yes, science and religion are compatible. And as we went through the interview, everything he seemed to be saying was about them conflicting. Oh, no, they fight on this, they fight on this, they disagree on that, they can't agree on this. And I I started to think, what what do we mean by compatible then? So I gave him a little prompt. And he said, oh, well, my parents fight and they never agree about anything and they hardly ever make any sense and they're very compatible, he told me. So I think we have to be quite careful about intellectualising the conversation. Well, let's start with another definition. Miles, what do you mean by religion? Well, that's actually, it's very interesting because of the two topics. It's actually religion I sometimes have more problems with than science, which may be a surprise to some folk. Might be a surprise that I would answer that I'm not religious, but that's in the sort of definition of religion as formalised ritual or, or man finding ways to please God or whatever. Uh, I'm a follower of Jesus as my saviour, Lord and master. That's a particular religion. For the sake of this discussion, I think it's better 
to think of religion as, as maybe practical theology. That is the quest for truth about the nature of the personal God through his self-revelation that results in awe, obedience, and a changed life. So it's that practical theology that we have to hold in creative tension with practical science. Ruth, what do you mean by science? So these are two hugely big topics defining religion and defining science. On science, particularly sort of textbook science in schools, we'd be looking at a way of looking at the world that responds to evidence. I'm a philosopher by background, so in terms of thinking about what the limitations are on on science, I've done quite a a lot of thinking about that. And are there questions that science has an answer for? And are there questions that science doesn't have an answer for? And as soon as we start having a conversation about what science can and and can't do, that conversation is a philosophical conversation rather than than a scientific conversation. But it's just where in the curriculum we then choose to explore those sorts of topics that, that we want, want to think about. And we'll come back to that discussion in a few minutes. Now, a song written by actress Wendy Craig. Butterflies was one of the TV shows she was in. It's a song appropriate for these sometimes confusing days. Joanne Lund sings, Show Me the Way.
And that was Joanne Lung, and the song was Show Me The Way. But let's get back to Ernie Ray and his friends. Just look back historically, because as I said in my introduction, right up to the time of the Enlightenment, science and religion were seen as having no signs of incompatibility, but the Enlightenment changed all that. And what specifically were the changes that that brought, Barry? I'll actually go back to something you said in the introduction, which I thought was really interesting, where you said that science was initially to understand God rather than the world. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting, because I would say that science was initially to sort of understand the world, but it was assumed that the way that we would understand the world would also fit with how we understand God. So we have Francis Bacon and, uh, and Newton and many other good scientists at about that kind of Enlightenment time. I think they sort of parked the problem, really. They said, well, we'll have this idea of two books. We'll have the book of nature. That's what we discover about reality through science. And we'll have the book of the Bible, as it were, the book of Revelation. And that's how we will discover things that we couldn't possibly discover through science, but are also true and God's revealed to us directly. And these two books must agree because they have the same author. And then having parked the problem, got on with the science. And I think that's the challenge, and particularly looking in schools, is that schools are still maintaining that division. And actually, in real life, that division breaks down all the time. And as, as Ruth has said, you know, it's where do you draw the line? Where we can say, on this side, science can answer the questions. And then on this side of the line, science can't answer the questions. And that isn't the case. It's much more challenging than that. Very the research that you've been carrying out. Just tell me what are the conclusions of that research? I think my main concern is the risk for us as adults is that we make assumptions about what children are thinking and the way they're making sense of their lessons. And it's only when you start to have the conversations with them that you see that they've interpreted this in a completely unintended way. So science teachers, for example, who, and gosh, you know, I've been here myself, I've been a science teacher in this position, we look uncomfortable. They ask us those big questions and, and we look like we didn't really want to get them. Or a child said to me, age 12, that she felt the rest of the class looking at her consolingly in the lesson in science on the Big Bang because they all assumed that this was destroying her faith in front of their eyes. You know, they didn't realise that actually she was very comfortable with the Big Bang. She talked about it with her parents. There are these assumptions that are underpinning children's thinking. And they mean that children stop asking questions. And as we all know, you know, that's, that's a risky place to be. It's, it's much better when the children feel they can ask the question and we can help to think about the way that we want to take them forward. Miles? So I absolutely empathise with what Barry's saying there. Uh, remember, I was trained fairly classically uh, as a scientist and uh, had a faith. And um, I heard and felt some of those reactions like uh, Barry was talking about, about the, the surprise that somebody would be comfortable with Big Bang. I did a degree where I was encouraged. It was called applied physics. And I was encouraged to take an interdisciplinary studies. And one of my favorite courses was in the philosophy department in, in logic and reason. And, and we culminated in Godel's incompleteness theorem, which says basically uh, a system can be complete or it can be consistent and not either. So, of course, science builds a consistent system. And the lecturer felt that as a scientist, I would be crippled by this thought that by, by philosophical definition, science can't explain everything. And, of course, I was quite satisfied with that conclusion. And I said to him, I'm a Christian. I, I understand that, that science cannot 
um, cover everything. But I have some concern um, about how we might think of doing this within the curriculum environment. Not saying science and religion get taught all the time together and not trying to argue for one particular type of complementary approach to science and religion or non-complementary approach to science and religion, but taking children's questions as they're asked and appropriate to the age, trying to answer them from time to time holistically, not just religion and science, but history and science, philosophy and science, and, and all mixed together to answer these holistic questions. Chris Tomlin, Paul Balosh, Steve, and Steve Chapman now, and based on some words from their prophet Micah, this song is You Have Shown Us.
and we leave you with Matt Redmond and Worthy You Are Worthy. Just how glorious you are And I cannot begin to tell How deep a love you bring Although my ears had heard of you But now my eyes have seen 